You can tell a lot about a guy by how he introduces himself. Hello everybody and welcome back to our Evaluating Modern Theology series in which we go through Paul Tillich's systematic theology and start wondering uh, how we got here. How did we get to where most of our churches are absolutely surrendering to the pressures of the world? Last week, we went through more of his introduction to systematic theology, and we found out that Paul Tillich, in spite of everything that he says and everything said about him, was not a Lutheran theologian. That is a misnomer. It is a terrible label, because the man clearly did not believe nor hold to sola scriptura. And for that matter, we can probably see that he didn't really believe in sola fide either. He didn't believe in any Lutheran distinctives, as far as I'm aware. And once we get to his actual theology, uh, sometime this year hopefully, we'll see that, no, the man couldn't really be said to actually believe in God. But that said, before we even get to any of that, we have to ask, if he was not a Lutheran theologian, what kind of theologian was Paul Tillich? Yes, he was a modernist, and yes, he was a theological liberal. But that doesn't really tell us too much, because there are modernist theologians and liberal theologians in even the most conservative denominations. Cough, cough, LCMS. Cough, cough, Southern Baptist Church. There's always going to be the modernist in the crowd, the cantankerous jerk that is really tired of your denomination being just so darn Christian all the time. But they still, theoretically, play by the rules of the theology of that denomination. A liberal Lutheran theologian might still, well, at least pay lip service to sola scriptura and sola gratia and sola fide. A liberal Roman Catholic theologian would still, in theory, play by the rules of scripture plus tradition. So we have to ask, if this man was not Lutheran, what was he? Well, let's keep going through this part of the introduction here, and maybe we can get an idea of it. Well, let's see what his thoughts are on Roman Catholic theological systems. <clears throat> Quote, Another approach which is not acceptable to most non-Roman theologians is the subjection of systematic theology to the decisions of councils and popes. Roman Catholic dogmatics uses those doctrinal traditions which have gained legal standing, de fide, as the real source of systematic theology. It presupposes dogmatically with or without a posteriori proofs that those doctrines whose validity is guaranteed by canon law agree essentially with the biblical message. Okay, so he's already brought up the objection to Roman Catholic theology. Uh, the belief that all the canon laws, all the councils and popes and everything are just assumed to be in line with the scriptures. But we've already brought up that Mr. Tillich is not a sola fide guy. 
So his objection to Roman Catholic theological methods is not going to be found in the fact that they add to the Bible or that they seek truth where God has not promised truth will be. To the contrary, he's looking at it like, oh my gosh, how can you just like assume that this is the case with your doctrinal authorities? How can you just do that and just like posteriori like assume it to be the case? Remember that Mr. Tillich is uncomfortable with the thought of you attaining the truth. The truth is something to be sought forever rather than actually held, believed, and applied. That would be arrogance after all. He believes that that's what demons do. So what's his real problem? with Roman Catholic theology, well, first and foremost, that it is just assumed based on the authority of the church, which I guess he has a point there, but he has the same problem with quote-unquote biblicists and orthodox people, small o orthodox, that's very important to remember, we'll get to that in a second. His problem with biblicists and small o orthodox Christians is that, well, we're just... Well, we think we found the truth and we just a posteriori assume that we have the truth from the Bible. So what does he actually say? What's his problem here further than that? This is the reason for the dogmatic sterility of Roman Catholic theology in contrast to its liturgical and ethical creativity and the great scholarship it develops in areas of church history which are free from dogmatic prohibitions. So he's got a big problem with quote-unquote dogmatic prohibitions making Roman Catholic theology sterile. This is a man who hates Thomas Aquinas and the scholastics not because they were philosophers of a competing school to his own beloved existentialist philosophy. No, this is a man that's upset that the Roman Catholic Church says, believe this and do not contradict it. He's got a real problem with authority. Hmm. So Mr. Tillich here is not a Lutheran, definitely not a Protestant, and he's certainly not a Roman Catholic, because the Roman Catholic Church, like the Lutheran Church, would tell you to believe things and not believe that which is contrary to it. Well, maybe he goes out and tells us exactly who it is he wants to be like. Let's take a look at this here. It is important for the ecumenical character of systematic theology that Greek Orthodox theologians, although they accept the authority of tradition, deny the legalization of tradition by papal authority. This gives the Greek Orthodox theologian creative possibilities from which the Roman theologians are excluded. Protestant theology protests in the name of the Protestant principle against the identification of our ultimate concern with any creation of the church, including the biblical writings insofar as their witness to what is really ultimate concern is also a conditioned expression of their own spirituality. <sighs> I smell so good right now. It can make use of Greek and Roman and German and modern concepts in interpreting the biblical message. 
It can make use of the decisions of sectarian protests against official theology, but it is not bound to any of these concepts and decisions. Well then, Greek Orthodox bros, hold this L. Paul Tillich likes you guys a lot. Oh, there's quote-unquote creative possibilities for the Greek Orthodox theologian because they're not bound by some yucky papal dictator out there. And they're not bound by the Protestant principle. Uh-uh. Oh no, he likes the way you guys do things. Now why is that? Why would Mr. Tillich praise the quote-unquote creative possibilities of Greek Orthodox theology? Well, first and foremost... Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy, does not have a large system of dogmatics. There's a lot of traditions. There is a lot of hierarchy in addition to tradition. But you really don't see, here is our list of dogmatics. You have the councils of the church, the seven ecumenical councils. Then you have a bunch of little miniature synodical meetings between bishops. And you have the scriptures. And then, yes, the uh, Palamas and all of the monastic tradition there. Which means that for Mr. Tillich here, there's a great deal of freedom. Now, he's not going to be Greek Orthodox. Oh, no, he loves modernist principles too much. In fact, he compliments, quote-unquote, Protestantism here, bringing up sectarian protests and... Uh, Greek and Roman and German modern concepts and interpreting biblical messages. He likes that Protestantism allows him to do that, but it's not Protestant theology that he wants to do. He doesn't want to ape that structure. He wants to imitate orthodoxy based on a perception of freedom. I imagine, as Mr. Tillich was doing his studies, he looked at how Eastern Orthodox theologians did their business and came to the conclusion that there are as many orthodoxies as there are Eastern Orthodox believers, giving him the freedom he desires to make stuff up and then tell you to believe it. And you can see that he gets a lot from Eastern Orthodoxy when he says this, the systematic theologian encounters in the concrete life of his denomination, in its liturgy and hymns, its sermons and sacraments, that which concerns him ultimately, the new being in Jesus as the Christ. Therefore, the denominational tradition is a decisive source for the systematic theologian however ecumenically he may use it. Let's unpack that. How does a theologian encounter his quote-unquote ultimate concern? Oh, by going to church, by going to the Sunday service and experiencing the liturgy and hymns, sermons, and sacraments. That's all I've ever heard from orthobros. From Eastern Orthodox believers, if I ask them what they believe about 75% of the time, I will hear, well, just come to the service. Come experience the liturgy. Come participate in what we participate in, and you'll see what we're about. Paul Tillich agrees. He looks at Eastern Orthodoxy and goes, yes, perfect. Let's do some experiences. Now again, 
He probably doesn't agree with anything from Eastern Orthodox doctrine. You will not really hear uh, some sort of idea of penance or uh, Mary going into hiding, you know, her body being perfectly preserved, all that stuff. You're not going to hear that from Paul Tillich, nor are you going to hear a lot about icons from Mr. Paul Tillich. Oh no, I doubt you'll even hear of the Jesus prayer here. But you will hear about experience. He admires orthodoxy for telling people to just taste and see, come and experience. Now, to be fair to our Eastern Orthodox friends, he's not advocating for theosis. Instead, he's advocating for what he actually finally labels the ultimate concern, the new being in Jesus as the Christ. What on earth does that mean? Oh, by all means, he will get to it later on in his systematic theology. But the idea of the quote-unquote new being is an existentialist one. A changing of the essence for the person as the thing in and of itself. The ding on sick of the man as different than he once was due to an existential encounter with God, I guess. He'll get into it more later on, I guarantee it. But that's one point for him, for uh, calling him a Lutheran theologian, at least if you are to refer to some Lutheran theologians as actually Lutheran these days, the ones that believe in quote-unquote Christification or Christosis, utilizing old Finnish sources, Sounds to me like a theologian who brings up that is actually taking their cue from Tillich and trying to justify it with other means. But I digress. We don't need to go there. Yes, finally, Mr. Tillich has identified the quote-unquote ultimate concern. It took him 38 pages to finally define it for his young and impressionable readers. And then, after having identified it, he brings it up over and over and over again in the next paragraph. Remember, when he says ultimate concern, he says the new being in Jesus as the Christ. And that is going to inform everything theologically for him. Let's just read this next paragraph, and I want you to count the amount of times you hear ultimate concern, concern, or existential concern. Ready? The biblical source is made available to the systematic theologian through a critical and ultimately concerned biblical theology. In the same way, church history is made available to the systematic theologian through a historically critical and ultimately concerned history of Christian thought, formerly called the history of dogma. The traditional term dogmatics implies a concern which the more recent term does not express. The history of Christian thought can be a detached description of the ideas of theological thinkers through the centuries. Some of the critical histories of Christian thought are not far removed from such an attitude. A historical theologian must show that in all periods, Christian thought has dealt with matters of ultimate concern, and that therefore it is itself a matter of ultimate concern. 
Systematic theology needs a history of Christian thought written from a point of view which is radically critical and at the same time existentially concerned. Yes, he repeats himself that many times to make a single point. That, well, Roman Catholics say this, and Protestants say that, and Eastern Orthodox, while we really like their creative outlets, even they're messing up, because the ultimate concern is my ultimate concern, Paul Tillich says. If you're not demonstrating that church history and theological history, the history of dogmatics, everything is of any way, shape, or form related to this ultimate concern that I have identified, you're not doing your job. This is the point in which Mr. Tillich has identified himself as a hyper-autopapist. Somebody who, by himself, by his own authority, believes that he can make all definitions whatsoever of what is important or not, what is dogma and what is not, what is true and what is not, all based on his one little point here, the so-called ultimate concern that is the new being in Jesus as the Christ. So what kind of Christian is Paul Tillich? First and foremost, he's not a Christian. He would certainly call himself that, but when we get to his definition of God, you'll see what I mean when I say he's not even a Christian. But we can identify, finally, what kind of theologian Paul Tillich was. He was not a Protestant theologian. He was not a Roman Catholic theologian or an Eastern Orthodox theologian. He was a concerning theologian. In part because that's all that's important to him is the so-called ultimate concern. And second, because everything he says is very concerning that it should ever have gotten into a single church or that a single seminarian should ever have read this tripe. Whenever somebody comes up to you and says, I made this up, you believe it now. What do you do? If a man came up to you, knock on your door, you open it up, and he looks like a missionary of some sort, but he's not a Mormon missionary, he simply says, I believe that squirrels come from Saturn. And if you disbelieve that the moons of Saturn are actually spaceships for the squirrels to reach our Earth, and they've been radio communicating messages into my head, if you don't believe me, I'm going to kill you. What do you do? You probably shut the door, lock it, and then immediately call the police. Because such an individual is making stuff up, telling you to believe it, and acting like there's consequences for it. How is Paul Tillich any different from that? He makes stuff up, declares himself an authority on that, and then tells people, the church, everybody, that they are demons if they disagree with him. He just says it in so many more words because he is a very verbose individual. But his demand that the church get with the times, the theologians out there stop trying to influence the world or even influence Christians as all they're supposed to do is have a white-collar job and get paid to say stuff or else you're demons. That is no different from Squirrel Boy claiming to have radio messages from squirrels that hail from the planet Saturn via their spaceship moons. And or else. Of course, you gotta believe him or else. Paul Tillich 
is a concerning theologian because his message thus far has concerned me to the point where I believe every church should have filed a restraining order on him. They certainly would have a lot earlier if they found out how he treated his female students, rubbing up on them, telling them to do things, writing pornography, featuring, well, some of the girls that he was really attractive to with his open marriage to his second wife, etc. and so forth. This man should not have been allowed within 120 feet of everybody. Now, if you decide to go out and get a copy of Paul Tillich's Systematic Theology, first off, I'm sorry, you shouldn't have done that. That's why I'm going through it for you. But if you really are doubting what I'm saying and you decide to buy it for yourself, you might notice that there is this weird implicit threat in everything he writes. Let's give an example here from this paragraph. This continuous and never-ending use of cultural and religious contents as a source of systematic theology raises the question, how are these contents made available for use in a way parallel to the method by which the biblical theologian makes the biblical materials available and the historian of Christian thought makes the doctrinal materials available? There is no established answer to this question, since neither a theological history of religion nor a theological history of culture has been theoretically conceived and practically established. There's this feeling like, he says, how is X to be done? Assuming that X, Y, or Z has to be done. Namely, using cultural and religious contents as a source of systematic theology, which shouldn't be done, by the way. You shouldn't be using anything but the Bible for your theology, uh, sola scriptura, all the way. But Mr. Tillich asks this, assuming that somebody is going to do it. They have to do it. He is a commensurate control freak, but he keeps his little control freak personality always on the back burner, always saying that this is what you must do. Let's reread a sentence from a previous paragraph that we read. The historical theologian must show that in all periods Christian thought has dealt with matters of ultimate concern and that therefore it itself is a matter of ultimate concern. If you want to be a historical theologian to me, says Paul Tillich, you're going to show in everything, all your periods of Christian thought, you've got to show that it has the ultimate concern, which I identified, and therefore it's a matter of ultimate concern, which again, I have identified. This is Manipulation 101 for academic settings. Paul Tillich wants you to agree with him, and not by just proposing definitions and proposing things. He doesn't present evidence. He just defines his demands onto you. He's not formulating things logically. He's not presenting evidence for what he says, and he's certainly not making a case to convince you. Instead, he makes demands, throws out definitions, and hopes that you don't notice that all he did was make something up and tell you to believe it. What kind of theologian was Paul Tillich? He was a concerning one. What kind of theology did he espouse? He espoused 
control freak theology. That is his method. That is everything he knows and everything he does in theology. Now that said, we are 38 pages in to a 700 some odd page book. And I guarantee you, none of this is going to change. He is always going to try to manipulate you using subtlety and blinding you with lots and lots and lots of words, as well as contempt for your backwards religious beliefs in order to get you to believe what he wants, which is according to his personal freedom, you know, that he thinks he learned from the Greek Orthodox churches. And before we start asking about logic and arguments and evidence, he does have an in-before on that with an appeal to Schleiermacher. No present-day theology should avoid a discussion of Schleiermacher's experiential method, whether in agreement or disagreement. Well, okay. Maybe you could make the case for that. Schleiermacher was a big deal as the father of quote-unquote liberal Christianity, which has its own definition. Schleiermacher wasn't always wrong, but Mr. Tillich here is about to lie about Schleiermacher, which is so fun. What does he say? Schleiermacher's feeling of absolute dependence was rather near to what is called in the present system ultimate concern about the grounded meaning of our being. Understood in this way, it lies beyond much of the usual criticism directed against it. Not true. Schleiermacher's feeling of absolute dependence is a complicated topic that cannot be redefined to conform to Tillich's existential categories. Why? Because existentialism was not something that influenced Schleiermacher. Now, it's hard to 100% pin down what Schleiermacher meant when he said the feeling of absolute dependence, but certain experts have pinned it down as a precognitive awareness of one's contingency in addition to that contingency being dependent upon a non-contingent being. God doesn't need you, you need him for literally everything. And Schleiermacher centered a good chunk of his theology on this insofar as anthropology is concerned. He was not speaking about ultimate concern about the ground and meaning of our being. This is Tillich intentionally confusing Schleiermacher with Heidegger and the phenomenologists trying to conform one theologian from a few hundred years ago, to be in line with Tillich. He's claiming historical precedent. And why is that important? Because it is based in experience. Schleiermacher centered human experience on a lot of his theology because he was trying to combat Enlightenment rationalism insofar as it was affecting the church. Did he do it the right way? I would say no. But he had his place, he had his influence. But in centering everything on human experience, Tillich basically avoids the need to make a case to you. He voids the need for logic, sources, materials, or heaven forbid, the Bible. 
Instead, he can redefine Schleiermacher to mean what he wants to say, claim that there's precedent, and say that with that, now he can appeal to conscience, human experience, and make that everything. In this discussion of the quote-unquote sources of systematic theology, Tillich is going to err on the side of experience so that he can claim truth from that experience. So that he can claim you should just believe him in his control freak style of doing things. His manipulative, two-faced fashion of trying to destroy the church from within. And now we know a little bit more about how we got here. How so many of our churches got here. Their seminary students were put under a program of emotional manipulation and abuse. And now we have a lot of denominations with Stockholm Syndrome. Can't wait to get to next week where we hear about the quote-unquote norms of theology. Ooh boy, can't wait for that. At least, as one positive, we'll have some information on how to defend against this garbage moving forward. Catch all next week for it. Amen and amen.